This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson vill jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, Everybody to another episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the best fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys who own Eric Carlson in perpetuity in their defunct Keeper Leagues. I'm your host today, Brian Com. My buddy Elon, my normal co-host, co-pilot, is out in a beautiful, sunny, warm place, taking it easy, soaking up the rays. But don't worry, he's still working hard on fantasy hockey. He's looking after his cupful team. He's helping prepare this show, what a guy, so that myself and our very special guest today, Steve Laidlaw, coming back, it's been so long, can join me and we'll go over all the usual stuff. We're going to talk injuries, outdries, line changes, hot streaks, cold streaks. But first off, hey Steve, how's it going? Uh, Pretty good. Are you sure I can't uh, swap spots with Elon right now? We all wish we could. <laughs> maybe he'll repeat. Maybe this will be that'll be his thanks. He'll hook you up with a free all expenses paid trip to a sunny and warm destination. Uh, that would be so lovely. Steve, uh, for anyone who's not familiar with him, used to be a huge uh, writer and person on Dobra Hockey and like the fantasy hockey internet. Uh, he had his work shown on Sportsnet, on Yahoo. He'd been a guest of our podcast several times. So it's really nice to have Steve Laidlaw back in the fold and mentioning Dauber Hockey, it's very appropriate now to mention we are presented by DauberHockey.com, the best fantasy hockey site out there. You've got some other sites that like dedicate their resources to football and baseball, and Dauber's dabbled in those too, but hockey is their forte. They know everything, and the tools available at Dauber Hockey, specifically the frozen tools, the last game lines, all super handy stuff so that you can plan for your week. Actually, use the report generator over in Frozen Tools, a bunch to get ready for this show. A really great way to show stats for any length of time about any set of players across all kinds of situations, all in one click. So you can go check that out at dauberhockey.com. But okay, let's get this show on the road with our injuries. We're going to start in sort of a sad place. And oh boy, is this one of the saddest places possible for any Sharks fans or Tomas Hurdle owners as he is gone for the season. He uh, had been coming off a really strong all-star game. Is that something to uh, to brag about? He had five goals over the two games the Pacific Division played, including the game winner 
got in on that $1 million check. And then when he returned to meaningful action, Hurdle got caught up in this unfortunate collision with Chris Tanev. And that's it. That's all for Tomas Hurdle this year. That's the last we're going to see him. He tore his ACL. He tore his MCL. I don't know if there are any other CLs left for him to have torn. I'm not a doctor, but it's bad enough that it's going to be a long time before we see Hurdle again. And for the Sharks, they are just reeling. First, Logan Couture, who's probably still out for another week or two, at least, according to his initial timeline. And now Hurdle makes a bad year for San Jose, even worse. So what does this mean for the surviving Sharks? Well, Hurdle had been playing with Evander Kane, Timo Meyer, Kevin LeBanc, Patrick Marlowe, Joe Thornton, Logan Couture. As of lately, the lines in San Jose were being mixed pretty regularly. They were not set in stone. So what did we see last night with Hurdle out of the lineup? We saw Timo Meyer and Evander Kane playing with Barkley Goodrow, and they got filled in as a line. They had only three shot attempts, four at five on five, 19 shot attempts against. The second line was made up of Thornton, Marlowe, and LeBanc, who did not fare much better, seeing just eight shot attempts for their line while facing 17 shot attempts against. And the Sharks are now running this super weird power play with Kane, LeBanc, and Thornton on one, and then Meyer, Marlowe, Neeson, and Gaudreau on the other. And I guess the headline there is, Timo Meyer just cannot, he couldn't buy a spot on the top power play unit in San Jose. So this is what it's come to for the Sharks. Meyer playing with Stefan Neeson and Barclay Goudreau on the power play. And Barclay Goudreau also at even strength with Evander Kane as like the first line center until Couture gets back. Steve, can anyone benefit from Hurdle's absence when the Sharks' lines are looking this way? Or is it a net loss through the entire San Jose lineup? I think it's more of a net loss than anything. I mean, the only guys scoring at a first-line rate for them are Meyer and Hurdle. And with Hurdle done for the year... um, it's just going to be them leaning on Meyer. I know, uh, I know, Evander Kane's do, doing pretty well for them in terms of the shot metrics, but it's uh, I don't know they're they're in a deep deep hole. And I know like Barkley Goodrow, he's actually uh, he's someone to look at in those those deep league settings with uh, with those masher categories because he does a whole lot of shot blocking and he gets some hits and some face off wins and if he can leech off of a guy who's scoring at a first line rate, um, he'd be super valuable for people in, in, in deeper type settings. But I mean, I think the whole team is just, they're just going down a, a downward spiral. It's really, really sad. So Barkley Goodrow, you're saying is worth some like bangers value, but even playing with Myron Kane, we'll see if he can, like you said, leech off any of that. But if you're in a bangers league, Goudreau has 15 hits in his last two games alone, a few blocks, which is nice to come from a forward, five shots. So, like, it's not nothing, but, Steve, we're not expecting a whole bunch of points to be coming from him, are we? wouldn't be shocked if he put up some points. I mean, he's been he's been tallying a few here and there, and certainly um, whatever you get. Like, if you're, you know, if you're in a really deep league and he's going to be putting up face-off wins and blocking a shot per game as a forward and, and getting you pile of hits i mean that's whatever else he gets you is uh really it's just you know a little extra icing on the cake nine face-off wins for goudreau on saturday against tampa so yeah there's there's this depth category value with hopefully upside just from being in the right place at the right time with meyer and kane and what's the deal steve with timo meyer why can't he get on the top power play what did he do to 
cheese off not just one Sharks coach, but the one that replaced him. Well, I mean, I think it's it's just about kind of playing styles and fit and stuff like that. Like they've got two, you know, uh, of the most highest paid defensemen in the game. They're trying to get those guys going. So they put those two guys back out there on the top power play unit. And then, you know, what's, what's Meyer's job. He's probably going to be in there as a shooter or maybe a net front guy, but maybe they've got other guys who, who fit that role better. They've got to give LeBanc and Thornton time on there because they're the best playmakers. They're highest paid forward at this point. Um, with Couture out is Kane. So he's going to get minutes up there and he takes a whole pile of shots. I don't know, like nothing's really been working there for them. So uh, it it could just be a case of them trying a bunch of options. And it, it seems like they split power play time between both units fairly evenly uh, the past little while anyway. So it's like, they're just throwing fish at the wall. Well, let's see what sticks in San Jose. And I agree. It's, pretty ugly i just don't know how anyone is really going to have that successful of a season especially we're hoping for brent burns to do something again in the second half of the season his job just got harder once couture comes back maybe there'll be some degree of normalcy but hurdle really was like the last beacon on this sharks lineup of someone who's really performing up to expectations and eric carlson who just like goes quiet and makes people mad and then just starts quietly rattling off points when everyone's already given up on him. So he's been fantastic. He's up to like a 70-point pace in his last however many games. So way to go, Eric Carlson. Maybe he can put the whole team on his back. Speaking of putting teams on their backs, our second most impactful injury of the week goes to a guy who's been doing that in Buffalo. Linus Allmark is out for three to four weeks after he just kind of slipped when he was alone in his crease, he was watching the puck, it was against the Ottawa, it was behind the net, and he just, something happened, and he fell, and now he's out with a lower body injury for the short term and sort of the medium term here. This almost reminds me of the Corpus Allo situation, where Corpus Allo and Columbus finally got some time, he broke through, only to go and get hurt, and now the same thing has happened to poor Allmark, who had started 25 of Buffalo's last 30 games. I don't know if people realize just how long it had been since Allmark had relegated Carter Hutton to backup duty. It's been since mid-November, and in that time, Allmark had been pretty darned good. Record of 12-11-2 with a 9-13 save percentage, and it looks like Allmark had just recently found this whole other gear, giving up just 12 goals over six games and boasting a 9-29 save percentage on his way to winning five of his last six. So the guys on short shifts, Lewis and Ben, already covered this injury a little bit, and they said how it's not a bad time to be a goalie in Buffalo because they'd won so much lately, and that makes Hutton potentially worth a look. And my thought was, are we sure that Buffalo wasn't only winning because Linus Allmark was doing all the heavy lifting for the team in front of him? Like, maybe he was the only reason things were going well in Buffalo. I mean, he and Jack Eichel. Uh, So my question for you, Steve, is can another goalie especially Carter Hutton being that goalie, have any success in the Buffalo crease. For what it's worth, before I uh, throw to you, let me just share his numbers so far. Since Allmark's injury, Hutton has stopped 53 of 56 shots for a 946 save percentage in the two games and change he's played since stepping back into the starter's role. So yeah, can Carter Hutton 
conceivably do as well as Linus Allmark for as long as Allmark is out. Any goalie can go on a run, but I don't think that uh, the team there in Buffalo is really set up for a whole lot of success. And and Hutton hasn't really played all that well for them. I mean, he's had a couple of hot streaks, but um, outside of that, he hasn't really been all that consistent. Uh, they've got some interesting prospects. Not sure if either of those guys are ready. Um but as we've seen time and time again, you know, prospect goalies can come up. Uh, NHL teams don't really have a book on them. They can go rattle off three, four, five in a row um, before teams kind of figure them out and then they, they go cold again. So um, I, I could see any of their options uh, putting up some wins or at least some quality starts over uh, the next couple of weeks. But uh, it's not a situation I'd be looking to invest in. Do we even look for even a moment to the third stringers in Buffalo. We've got Jonas Johansson or Ukopeka Luolkinen, who I'm desperately trying to say his name right. He is the official mascot of Keeping Carlson because he has KK in each of his three names. Uh, so that's why I'm excited about him. But in terms of actual fantasy relevance, are we looking to either of these guys to even challenge Hutton while Omar is out? I'd be shocked if they, if they got much of a run, but like I said, anything can happen. I think Johansson's been the guy that they've been uh, calling up with uh, Olmar. Um, Lukanen's probably the future there, but um, it's not a situation that I'm all excited about. And let's move on to hopefully what is not the another huge impact injury in Florida. I'm just saving it for third because hopefully it's a short-term thing, but Alex Barkov left partway through Saturday's game against Montreal with a lower body injury. Noel Achari took his place at five-on-five five with Huberdeau and Dadanov. And uh, that line did not fare well in that setup. They had none of the shot attempts while they were on the ice together. And they fa- they had zero. They faced nine against them. Vincent Trocek took Barkov's top power play spot. That also didn't go well for anyone because Florida was shut out by Price and the Habs, who are, by the way, the superior team this year compared to Florida. Trocek had one shot. Achari had none. So no one immediately benefited from the absence of Barkov, which is probably to be expected because he is such a key player on that team. Joel Quenville updated the media after the game, and he said it's not believed to be serious for Barkov. They're going to have him to have an MRI today, so it's happening sometime as we're recording or after we're recording, uh, to make sure he's all good. You can listen to the guys on short shifts to find out if there are any long-term repercussions from this injury for Barkov. So, Steve, I don't actually know that I have a question for you here, except quickly, on a scale of 1 to 10, let's just pretend that Vincent Trocek, whether Barkov is injured or not, uh, gets another look at the top power play. How much do you still believe in Trocek being an above-average fantasy piece if he gets another opportunity so far this season, pacing as a 50-55 point player for the large part of it? Is there any hope left that he can reclaim any of the form that brought him even above 60 points. That's kind of what he profiled as for most of his career. And given what he does in all the other peripheral categories, like 55 points isn't really that bad. But I mean, it, it certainly was awesome when he when he threw up 70 and had like almost 10 power play goals or whatever it was he had a couple of years ago before the injuries. Um, the potential's there, but I mean, like if, if Barkov's out for any length of time, like pack it in Florida. Uh, he's, he's the engine there, but certainly like, I don't know, you're, lo- you're looking for a trade, uh, 
one of their other dynamic forwards or an injury um, for Trocek to consistently get the power play minutes that he needs to to go from good to great. It's kind of funny that Florida somehow doesn't have the depth to give Trocek enough people to play with. Like they load up their top line, Huberto, Dadnov, Barkov, and then Trocek plays with Connolly and Achari last game. Vitrano, T- Toninato, and Mike Hoffman is the other somewhat relevant line. So it's just like... Florida has enough, just enough depth to keep Trocek off the top unit, but not enough to actually give him some quality five-on-five line mates, which is a sad situation for Trocek, who does need that power play time. As you mentioned, Steve, he had 13 power play goals in that big breakout 75-point season and has not seen top power play deployment since then, which is pretty wild. But there you have it over in Florida. Let's move over to Dallas with another injury uh, that they're dealing with that may or may not last much longer, but it's been to Rupe Hints. And I'm actually not so interested in talking about what the injury means because he could be back before long. Upper body injury, he's just missed two games, unlikely to miss much more time. But I just want to talk about Hints as a whole and get your take on him because he hadn't been consistently playing with anyone noteworthy before he was injured. Like he was playing with Joe Pavelski, who this year sadly is not noteworthy. Dennis Gurianov, who we're going to talk about a little later in the show, Corey Perry. But like, there's no one, A, who benefits from Hints being out of the lineup. Jason Dickinson stepped into his spot, but like got a point, doesn't do much else. Uh, but Hints is the big question mark. He's the enigma here. He had a nice little run with seven points in six games as the calendar turned, but little else has gone consistently well for Rupe Hints before that run and since that run. We hoped going into this season that Hints would get some exposure to one of Dallas's big three, but he's really had mostly Pavelski and occasionally uh, Alex Radulov to play with, and to very little effect. Hints has just 24 points on the season in 42 games, regularly sees like 11 to 13 minutes a night, has just 79 shots on goal. So even though he has just 24 points, he has 15 goals in 42 games on 79 shots, which means he's shooting at 20%. And I don't think that's even sustainable. So he's almost been lucky in in a sense to get as far as he has this year. So Steve, I'm going to ask you, are we in the clear to call this season off as the chance that Hints had to break out to say, you know what, forget it. It's not going to happen in the back end of the season. Now we're looking to next year. Are we even looking to next year to see if Hints can flash some of that skill we thought we saw in the, his earlier games? Well, I mean, it's only his second year in the league, right? So we, we could be a couple of years away from, from a breakout for him. And, and certainly you, you talk about the high shooting percentage. I think that he's, he's kind of an instant offense type of guy in, in a similar way to, uh, to peak Michael Grabner in the way that he can do so much with speed transitioning out of defense, uh, turning it into instant offense. Um, and, and less so in, in terms of setting things up. Now, I think he's a, I think he's got a lot higher potential than uh, than Grabner ever did. So I think that he could be a guy who's who's going to be uh, an offensive driver for them in the future. But honestly, like Dallas, I think they they just want to play one nothing murder hockey. So boring. I guess they can get away with it with Ben Bishop. Uh, forget that they have Sagan and Ben and Radulov on their team. Like they're just like, okay, fine. We can't add enough depth pieces. We're just going to shut it down. We're going to give up scoring goals and rely on our goalie, even though like they don't have a great 
defense either. So is that really a way that Dallas can contend? Is that their best way forward? They make it really, really tough on you. They keep everything to the outside. They make sure that their goaltenders can see the shots that they do allow. And it's proven a very effective system getting excellent goaltending out of both Bishop and Hudobin. I think a lot of it is the defensive system. Like certainly they're, they're talented goaltenders, but a, a lot of it's just slowing things down and, and muddying things up. And they've got everyone buying into the system. Like I don't think they lack for offensive talent. I, they're just, they're just happy to slow it down and, and play a playoff brand of hockey, uh, all regular season. And I mean, you referenced the, uh, the, horse hockey line um uh, of their big guns um and certainly like even those guys can't get it going uh with with the defensive system that they've been implementing and i i think that uh, a lot of that has to do with um some of those guys uh regressing and in their later 20s and now into their 30s um not quite as prolific as they once were but also a lot of it is just the system you know it's 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 proven effective for them so why why would they go away from it i should clarify dallas has been a good defensive team they've allowed the seven fewest expected goals against for 60 minutes this year at five on five out of any team in the league Uh, you know we've talked a lot about pittsburgh and columbus and minnesota offering their goalies fantastic protection dallas is like not right up there with them, but just a small step. Like they're on the next tier. So they're just doing it with a group that you don't consider a great shutdown, but you mentioned their system seems to be working really well for them. And another piece about uh, going back to Carter Hutton talk, Buffalo is up there. They protect their goalies as well as Dallas has. So you think maybe that's a good enough reason for Hutton to come in and do well. Then you look at his 897 and be like, well, why didn't he before? Uh, speaking of defense, we've got a couple injuries on the back end to big names who have been really weak through much of this year. Drew Doughty has been a little more relevant than Oliver ekman Larson. So let's start with him. Uh, he has an undisclosed injury, Drew Doughty. He's missed three games, which doesn't actually seem like a huge loss for fantasy owners. Uh, with him out because of how he's been playing. He did practice Saturday. Doughty could be back Tuesday, which like may or may not be something his fantasy owners actually want for him to return. We chatted about Drew Doughty in recent weeks and how cold he'd been. Just two points in his last 11 games before his injury. 26 shots in that time. 26 and a half minutes a night. So plenty of time and still shooting, but nothing to show for it on the score sheet. Even if you take a bigger slice of his numbers, and I'm not cherry picking this mediocrity from Drew Doughty. Just 10 points in his last 27 games. 58 shots in that time. So here's my question. It's that if Drew Doughty is really back Tuesday, and you have him in an IR spot on your roster, are you dropping someone to bring him in and activate him? Are you going to try and just leave him in IR for a bit to determine if he really is worth dropping another roster player for? Well, it's always situationally dependent. I mean, you know, you think that you put Doughty on IR and whoever you picked up probably isn't as good as him. So you're probably going to reverse that transaction uh when Doughty is healthy and and you know as much as his his production has kind of come and go and he isn't uh he isn't peak 60 plus point Doughty um he's still going to get you I don't know roughly a 45 point pace good good shot volume not a great 
plus minus, but there's going to be power play points tucked in there. I mean, it, it speaks to how situationally dependent defensemen really are on uh, on their production. Like you can count on Doughty to probably get you 10 goals just based on the shot volume and talent. But outside of that, like his assist numbers are going to wax and wane depending on uh, what uh, what Kopitar and, and the rest of the guys doing. So um I'd be excited to get him back in there. Like you used probably a way too high draft pick to get him. So you might as well use him for the good that he does provide. For anyone looking for any depth residual value, Derek Forbert is seeing more time since Doughty has been out. He only made a season debut on January 6th after he'd been sidelined by a back injury that kept him out for the first half of this year. His time on ice seems to be creeping back up after a few low games where maybe he was being eased in. Uh, so far, 12 hits, 4 blocks, and 5 shots for Forbert. In his last three games, he's still not totally up to the hits and blocks heights that made him relevant in some leagues two and three years ago. So I'm not sure there's any value here unless you're in a deep bangers format and those blocks and hits, even at not the level that made him a fantasy relevant player, uh, could still have help you this year. Speaking of someone who has not helped you this year, how about Oliver ekman Larson, who is missing time? Now, he left Thursday's game against LA with a lower body injury. It was a game-time decision Saturday before he was ruled out to play before the pregame warm-up. But my question is, does that even matter? ekman Larson has just 22 points in 53 games this year. Former two-time 20-goal scorer is now pacing for fewer than 10 goals this season. Has only six so far. Is only taken 16 shots in his last 10 games. And this is still largely with a top power play role that he had, then lost, then got back. So I have a take, and I don't know how spicy this one is, Steve. You can tell me. But anyone who still owns Oliver ekman Larson is snoozing. There's no reason to own him. Or let me put that as a question. Is there any reason to still own Ekman Larson in any format, given what he's been able to accomplish or not accomplish all season long? I, I would take it a step further. When was the last time that Ekman Larson was a guy you wanted to pay the full price to actually get like it seems like he's a guy who i would always rather you know wait on defense and and get the the new young guy who's gonna who's gonna spring forth in a bigger role and put up way more points than what ekman larson's just gonna tease you so he used to have his shots and that's what helped him be relevant like he could be counted on for 200 or more shots that is not the case anymore i mean he's not gonna fall so short if he keeps up his current shot pace he could still land somewhere between like 160 170 but oh boy, especially with no power play points. Speaking of the Coyotes power play, uh, Ekman Larson was replaced there yesterday by Jordan Osterley, who played over three minutes on the top unit with Taylor Hall, Connor Garland, Christian Dvorak, and Phil Kessel. Osterley had nothing to show for it, not even a shot. He's just nine points in 42 games this year. If Ekman Larson misses any kind of time, is Osterley even worth a look? Or should we consider him in the same league of Ekman Larson as being ineffective on the power play? Ekman Larson, by the way, reminds me of, you know, someone like Boakvist or Nick Lettier and Devin Taves, who've been in this power play quarterback situation and not taking advantage of it for their fantasy owners. So now we have Jordan Osterley stepping into this spot. Do you see anything coming from him if Ekman Larson misses extended time? Yeah, not a whole lot of interest in Osterley. I'd be more interested in, in seeing what you can get out of uh, Goligoski or Chikrin, who I think are available in, in quite a few fantasy leagues now. Apparently, they're not getting that top unit uh, run, but they've been productive enough. Um, 
especially in uh, banger leagues um, where they only need the secondary unit power play time to uh, to put up just enough points along with what they do in the peripherals to uh, to be valuable. And they did see uh, some power play time in the last game. They played with Keller, Schmaltz, and Soderberg as a three-forward, two-defense unit. And let's just see Shikrin hasn't done anything, except he's taken a bunch of shots lately. Uh, Goligoski can't even say that about him. But I agree. Like, he gets blocks. He gets a hit every so often. He did have a point against Chicago on Saturday night. I, I think the bottom line is that none of these Coyotes defensemen, it's almost like, I feel like there are a few teams in the league where there's no value on the blue line. Arizona has been one of them. New Jersey has been another lately. The Islanders have been one for several years. Uh, so maybe we just lump in Arizona as being one of those teams. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to go that far, but it certainly seems that way. Like if, they're, if their number one guy isn't playing like a number one guy and their number two guys probably have a little bit uh, more potential if they were bumped up, um, if, if they're not getting that bump then you know there's not a whole lot there except for in your your deeper settings all right let's go to a couple deeper cuts for injuries no pun intended in st louis oscar sundquist has a lower body injury he's moved to the ir before this weekend and he sundquist had been in a top six spot for 15 games give or take either on brayden shen or ryan o'reilly's line and sundquist was a popular stream because of some good schedule weeks for st louis lately and the guys he'd been playing with. But if you did stream Sunkfist in, he hadn't done a whole lot for you. Just six points in his last 15 games, fewer than two shots per game on average. And then considering the impact of Sunkfist being back in the lineup, okay, who's going to step into a spot? Uh, St. Louis actually isn't going to let anyone step into Sunkfist's spot. They're just going to blow up their entire lineup and turn, put it all in the blender and see how it pops out. Uh, there is no Sunkfist line anymore. So this is what the Blues ran with last game. They had Shen, Brower, and Steen, Schwartz, Thomas, and Bozak, O'Reilly, Perron, and Sanford. So just for a moment, let's notice that Shen and Schwartz have been separated for the first time in forever, and they've both been seeing success together. So we're going to talk about that in a second also. But my question for Sunkvis being out is like, do we even care about Sunkvis or any depth scorer in St. Louis? You try and find someone who has been doing well as a depth scorer for the Blues. Like, there's not a lot to look at aside from two names. You've got Robert Thomas, who's up to a smooth six points in his last eight games. And then you have Zach Sanford? What? He leads not just depth players on the Blues, but he leads all St. Louis skaters in scoring over the last three weeks. This is Zach freaking Sanford. Three goals, six assists for nine points in his last eight games. None of them coming on the power play. All of them coming over the course of getting 14 minutes a night. And all of them coming over just with just 14 shots on goal to go with them. So... What are we even thinking about these St. Louis lines right now? Sanford is up with O'Reilly and David Perron. Is he a guy that everybody needs to be running out to own? Doubtful. They've got a whole bunch of uninteresting options, and I think we're all just kind of waiting um, along with the St. Louis Blues to find out if Tarasenko is going to be back before the end of the year. And if not, they're going to go make a pickup at the deadline to play in their top six, and that's going to be the guy to actually go out and get. And he's probably on someone's fantasy roster already. Um, Sunfist, Sanford, Blaze, other options like that. Like they can all be valuable in, in 
depth leagues, especially ones with with hits. But I'm not I'm not running out to grab them. I don't know. Stream them if there's nothing else there. But it, it's an uninteresting proposition. Okay, so forget everybody in St. Louis except for the big guys. How do you see Shannon Schwartz doing if they do stay apart? I should mention St. Louis was destroyed last night by Winnipeg five to two. So who even knows if these lines stick? But let's say Schwartz and Shen stay separated. Should we downgrade our expectations from both of them? No, because I think they're always going to be in the mix to. Uh, drive offense on their own and they're always going to be paired up with at least someone who who can do enough for them plus they're going to be in the mix for the power play so uh, i know schwartz can he can really come and go and i think that he's the guy uh, out of any of their their best forwards who's going to get uh, the short end of the stick in terms of top power play usage so he 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 relies a lot more on that five on five production so some concern with him maybe but uh overall not not all that worried okay let's see if you're worried about carter hart being out in philadelphia he's out at least another week that's a quote with an abdominal strain that was reported as having happened in practice back on january 14th we thought that maybe the all-star break would be giving carter hart enough time to heal and recover and be ready to go but no and he might need more time which is a little concerning for anyone who's owned and relied upon Carter Hart this season. So now the question is, can we own and rely upon Brian Elliott who since Hart went down had a few strong outings including a 19 save shutout against Pittsburgh before going out and laying an egg Friday night against the same Pittsburgh team giving up four goals on only 20 shots. Which, by the way, Pittsburgh with 39 shots on goal across two games against Philadelphia. Why aren't they shooting on the Philadelphia Flyers? Uh, but maybe that's besides the point. I'm more interested in knowing, and I've given my answer about this on past shows, so let's see if our takes align, Steve. Can Brian Elliott be trusted to be a starter in fantasy lineups in Hart's absence, or is the risk too high in Elliott to bother chasing the reward? Yeah, the answer is no. You can't trust him, and uh, you know it, it's less to do with Elliott. I think he's, he's talented enough. We've seen in the past that in the right system he can he can go on extended runs of uh, winning a lot of games and producing some, some wonderful numbers for fantasy owners, but the reality is Philadelphia is potentially the most Jekyll and Hyde team in the NHL. So on any given night, they can just roll over and die. And on any given night, they can do what they've done to Pittsburgh and and suffocate them to death. So I think that you don't know what you're getting. Why even bother? Another team where you don't know what you're getting is Edmonton, right? We've seen Jekyll and Hyde from then. We've seen, oh my goodness, right out the gate when Koskinen and Mike Smith were on fire. These guys look like playoff contenders, although they really didn't. But people thought they did, and then their goaltending fell apart, and so did their win totals. And now they're like in this middle ground where are they or aren't they? Uh, And one of the things that we're looking at right now in Edmonton is that James Neal has gone missing from the lineup, which normally wouldn't be a big deal for most NHL teams. But Neil had been getting third wheel deployment with Connor McDavid and Zach Cassian uh, before this injury. By the way, I think McDavid's line is the only line in the league to actually feature two third wheels, which is just so very Oilers. Uh, We'll see when Neil's back. He missed both Friday's and Saturday's game. Uh, He wasn't even doing much with his McDavid exposure, so I don't even know if there's anything to say about him. But how about saying something about the guy who replaced him? And Steve, I feel like you might know more about him than I do. His name is Josh Archibald, and he stepped in and assisted on a Zach Cassian goal. But that's not all that Archibald has done lately. 
Steve, this guy actually has 12 points in his last 15 games. Six goals, six assists, 16 shots in his last 15. So that's not a lot of shots, high shooting percentage, but 12 points in 15 games. We need to think about that. And Archibald has actually been with McDavid for a handful of recent games leading up to the Neal injury. But some of this production also came when Archibald was playing alongside Kyra and Riley Sheehan. So Steve, I'm going to ask you a classic Keeping Carlson question that I usually am on the answering end of. Who is Josh Archibald? He's a fourth liner who happens to be getting the McDavid bump. And we've seen this before. Like, certainly, I don't know, half of his hot streak came when the fourth line basically scored their first goals of the year. So um, he's going to be back down on that fourth line, I imagine, in in pretty soon um, if they get healthier. I mean, James Neal being out, I don't think that, hurts them all that much he's really not an effective five on five player seems mostly like like dead weight out there um he fills a nice role on the on the power play as a net front guy but chiasen's done just as good with that role i think he's up over 10 power play goals on the air um he'd probably be the most interesting out of any of these names we've mentioned so far um archibald he throws some hits few shots on goal if you're in the deepest of leagues you know, you're enjoying the bump, but that points isn't why you rostered them. Right. Okay. So what I'm hearing from you is that Neil Archibald, forget them both. Maybe as a stream, though. Yeah. For like, I, I don't know. Like they're they're really just not all that interesting. Again, like it. You know, if you're in a league that's super deep with hits, Archibald he he provides some really nice hit numbers. He can provide some decent shots, but again, like he's a fourth liner. So whatever you're getting for for point scoring it is just luck and bonus archibald versus sanford asking the real tough questions here who, who do you take for one game for one game i mean it's a coin flip I, okay for one week for one week I, I would just look at who's who's given this games played yeah okay and, fair and, and, and where are my needs right like i i think archibald's probably going to be a better bet if you're if you're looking for some hits let's move on to someone who may be more rosterable than those guys we've got kasperi cabin who uh, was an unexpected scratch saturday night with no mention of an injury so the trade wind started a blowing speculation running wild and then i don't know if it was more salacious or less salacious when uh Head coach Sheldon Keefe, after the game, uh, explained that Kasperi Kapanen had been scratched for, quote, internal accountability. What could Kapanen have possibly done? Like, slept in or been late for practice, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, late late for any type of team meeting or, you know, maybe super lipping off or, or just not paying attention uh, during during something like I don't know. Who cares? Like, I think that uh, (laughs) the only reason that this is getting as much attention as it is, is because it's Toronto. Like, Ovechkin got scratched by the Caps once upon a time for being late to a meeting. Like, this stuff happens. Um, They're obviously, they're trying to uh, establish expectations. And I think that uh, internal accountability is a, a perfectly good enough reason to scratch someone. And I don't know. It is what it is. Apparently, we'll hear more from Kaffin in Monday. But in the meantime, like you said, Steve, the fact that this happened in Toronto means we get uh, tens or probably hundreds of thousands of words written upon uh, whatever the heck 
people want to try and make this mean, which, like you said, is probably nothing. So uh, someone said this could be the perfect wake-up call for Kasperi Kapanen, who has not had the greatest season. So we'll see if that comes true. How about someone who does not need a wake-up call? Chris Kreider of the New York Rangers. Uh, he has been on a heck of a run lately, and that's putting it lightly. In the last two months, he has 22 points in 22 games. He's a point-per-game player, 68 shots over three shots per game, seven power play points. But unfortunately, Kreider was watching a little bit too much of the Royal Rumble last week with his Rangers teammates because he took Mika Zibanejad's knee to his head mid-game on Saturday night. The Rangers have reported that it wasn't a concussion, and for now, he's just day-to-day with an upper body injury. But with his injury history, you have to be at least a little concerned that he might miss extended time. Brendan Lemieux took both Kreider's five-on-five top line spot and his top power play spot. So there's something to think about if Kreider does miss his extended time, but we're not expecting a whole lot from Brendan Lemieux in the meantime, right? That was a brutal need. Like, holy smokes, the velocity on that. And like, obviously an accident, but just, I don't know. I, I don't understand how he isn't concussed right now. I don't know. I, I guess we'll find out more, but um, I mean, he's a guy who's on the trade block, right? So if Lemieux is getting those minutes with Kreider out, then maybe that's something to think about uh, down the stretch because holy smokes, like the Rangers yeah. offense is dynamite. Panarin, Zibanejad, oh, like these guys are fantastic, like an absolute gold mine right now. Anyone who's getting to ride alongside those guys is going to be putting up points. Um, like Ryan Strom is having a season because those guys are putting up points. So uh, fantastic situation. If Kreider's injured or if Kreider ends up getting traded because they can't come to terms on a, on a contract and Lemieux jumps in there, like that guy already puts up awesome only minute numbers, awesome hit numbers. Like, that, that could be a goldmine for people uh, come fantasy playoffs. So keep an eye on Brendan Lemieux if Kreider, like you said, it, it looks pretty high impact, and I apologize if I made light of it at all. <laughs> but uh, if Kreider does miss any time, you just want whoever steps into his shoes. Uh, Buchnevich also getting some good exposure. I was going to talk about him later in the show, but he's done pretty well lately. Five points in his last 10, two in his last three. Uh, and then... There's a bunch of Rangers who have more than a half point per game in their last 10. Adam Fox with 6 and 10. Ryan Strom with 7. Jesper Foss with 8 in his last 10. Tony D'Angelo, point per game in his last 10. And going back before that, and then Kreider's advantage on Panarin. Like, these top four guys, those three forwards and D'Angelo, have just been hot for so long. And uh, they're likely not available in your leagues, but... New York has the stream gummy schedule next week with Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Sunday games. So probably the only one who might be available in your league is Buchnevich, who you might want to check into. Someone who I don't think you still want to check into is Dustin Bufflin, who Elliot Friedman reported that we're getting ready uh, to get more clarification on Bufflin's status for the rest of the season. Uh, he hasn't been skating. And this is a quote from Friedman. His most likely outcome is that he doesn't play this year and his future is revisited in the summer. So I just want to put that to bed. I don't see any reason to go ahead and own Dustin Bufflin. If you've been burning a spot on him, now is fine to, a fine time to cut bait. Although we did have, Steve, one of our patrons suggest 
if Bufflin is somehow traded to another team or decides sometime this week or next that he does want to play this year, he could be in shape in time for the fantasy playoffs, perhaps. Do you see any possibility of that happening? Is it even worth bothering to speculate? How? I mean, like, seriously, how? How is he going to be in shape come fantasy playoffs? Like, we have to assume that because of the surgery and everything like that, like, he has not been getting any game reps whatsoever. Um, we've seen this in the past. Like, uh, you look at when Mike Fisher was retired for half the year and then had to come back. And, like, was he even at a hundred percent by the playoffs, like the, the NHL playoffs, like it, it takes a long time to actually build up, uh, that, that power and endurance to be able to play a regular NHL shift. And, and, you know, we know that, you know, Bufflin's one of those guys who like, he's never in the best of shape to begin with. Um, Maybe he can work his way back in, but I, I just don't see it. Like I don't, I'm not really that interested in burning any assets or time or energy on uh, trying to find a spot for him when it, it just doesn't seem like um, this is the year that he's going to be playing. I hear that and totally agree. This latest update means nothing to me, just as all the other updates have. There's been no smoke. I don't see any fire coming. And then we have this late breaking injury that just was announced. As we started recording this show, it looks like, and I don't know when this happened, but Philip Zadina is going to miss two to three weeks with a lower body injury. He was scratched in a game in Grand Rapids where he was playing over the All-Star break. And everyone's like, what? What's going on? And they said, well, he's got a little injury that he doesn't think it's worth playing through. We don't either. So we just decided to give him rest. And then it looks like the update, I'm reading this tweet from Dana Wakiji, who said, who's quotes Jeff Blashill saying it actually happened on Friday and kind of as he played through it into yesterday, which is a mess of a quote from a coach. Uh, but there it is. Uh, he's been getting nagged by something. He's playing through it. And I guess they said, you know what? How about you just shut it down, get to a hundred percent. So that stinks for anyone like myself who had added Zadina, getting excited that he was playing with Larkin and Bertuzzi on the top line. But that does open a spot up there just in time for the return of Andreas Athanasiu, who could be back as soon as Monday and could just step right in to Zadina's top line, top power play spot. Athanasiu, we had high hopes for him this season. Unfortunately, it's hard to have really high hopes for anyone in Detroit. So far this year, he has 19 points in 36 games, which is disappointing after he came off last year with 54 points in 76 games, when it was like he and Anthony Mantha finally getting the sort of deployment we'd been hoping from them. Their ice time went up, their responsibilities went up, their shot rates went everywhere, everything went up. And while Mantha was able to keep that up while he was healthy in Detroit this year, Athanasiu has had more trouble continuing to get that good deployment. So where do you stand, Steve, on thinking that Andreas Athanasiu can reclaim some of that lost fantasy hope that we had for him starting the season? He's still just, this is just his age 25 season, right? Uh, injury plagued, but hey, he's coming back. He's got a good deployment spot to walk into. Are you interested? Always interested in Athanasiu. You know, he's another guy who can be that instant offense, uh, fantastically creative and, and a brilliant skater off the rush. Um, I'd be a lot more interested if uh, during previous times of uh, Mantha's injuries, he had 
gotten top line run like it doesn't seem like they they want to give him much of that um but you know now that they've they've picked up fabry uh maybe those two on on a second line a little bit of of, uh sheltered deployment maybe they could make some hay against other teams third lines um I'd be a little bit intrigued by that, but I mean, obviously, you know, if you're investing in Detroit, you've got to uh, be investing in having your plus minus get uh, sucked to the bottom. We hope that no one in this day and age, especially our listeners, are playing in leagues that has plus minus counted. But yes, it's it's good that you're here to bring that up in case it is. Uh, before we move on, th- those are our whole slate of injuries today. We're going to move on to our outdries. But before we do, let's mention that today's show is sponsored by our wonderful patrons. Thank you so much for supporting episodes of Keeping Carlson. Patrons are the reason we're now into our sixth season of the show And you can join them by heading over to Patreon, becoming a patron. And you know, we're going to give you a whole bunch of stuff for the $5 a month that we're asking you to give us to support. You're not only going to help us keep putting out these four Sunday shows we do and eight short shift episodes that you already get, but you're also going to get an invite to the exclusive Keeping Carlson Patrons Only Facebook group. You're going to get to listen live on Sundays to our recordings, join in on the live chat. You get a bonus patron cast each month. You get a bonus sit start episode each Saturday where Ben from Short Shifts uh, has a special guest every weekend and they help you figure out like those tough coin flip paper thin decisions that you need to make to try and squeeze the most out of your roster on busy nights you also get your show notes you get on the wait list to manage a cupful team although it's getting late in the season so you might not want to really join for that perk but you might just want to join because you like what we do you support the show you think it's worth uh, like i don't know with 12 episodes a month that you're getting uh, i don't know what that is divided by five but however much per episode we just hope that if you haven't supported us yet, you'll consider it by heading on over to patreon.com slash keeping Carlson. Help us keep doing these shows, support us, get perks. Again, patreon.com slash keeping Carlson. And again, a big hearty thank you to everybody who has joined us lately and not so lately and has been with us for five years. We have an amazing community and thank you to all of you in it. Okay, let's get to some outjuries. Starting in Anaheim, how about we start at the top of the alphabet and then not go in alphabetical order the rest of the way? Uh, Jacob Silverberg, though, is someone Elon has loved to talk about this year. He's back from being on the shelf. He has one assist in three games since returning to the lineup. He was like in and out of the lineup for a little while. But Silverberg is back on the top power play and also playing with Getzlaff and Raquel on the top line at even strength. Silverberg has had a weird season because he has 30 points in 47 games, which is not remarkable But what has been remarkable are these hot and cold runs that he's been on. Like he's had seven shot games and zero shot games and huge runs of points. Like here's a slice. Uh, Silverberg has two points in his last seven games. Before that, he had 10 points in 13 games. Before that, he had one point in seven games. So is this just who Jacob Silverberg is? Or is one of these hot or cold versions of him the real one and the opposite is the anomaly. I'm trying to figure out, is he worth rostering the rest of the season? I don't know if he's the hot guy or the cold guy. I can't stomach the roller coaster. For Silverberg, the the most intriguing aspect of turning is he's another credible and, and solid defensive forward for the Ducks. So now, you know, you've you've had, uh, as a John Gibson owner, you, you've had some real struggles of late, and you get another 
really strong defensive forward in there. I think that's going to help his numbers bounce back a little bit. So um, less concerned with Silverberg. Like he, there's a, there's a time and a place for him, um, but he's not going to be a guy that you're relying on. It just whatever you get is is a bonus as a guy who's you know. 40 to 50 point uh, producer, but uh, if he can help their team defense um, and get Gibson's numbers back up to where they, where they should be, then he might be worthwhile to the ducks, but not necessarily to your fantasy team. Hopefully in small spurts, at least he still contributes. How would you compare him to someone like, Andre Kasha, who don't look now, and Elon is probably rolling his eyes so hard because he's been a Silverberg booster. I've been a Kasha booster. But I wonder if Kasha is the duck more worth owning at this point. He has seven points in his last 10 games, 26 shots in that time. So almost four shots per game over his last 10. Unfortunately, he's not playing with anyone great, or at least anyone who is currently great. He's got uh, Steele and Jones playing with him at five on five. He's on the second power play unit. What do you think? Do you think Kasha is worth owning ahead of Silverberg, equal to Silverberg, or less than Silverberg? In a one-year league, less so than Silverberg. In a keeper league, probably more so. Um, I definitely drink in the Kool-Aid on Kasha. He's the, he's the type of guy who for years has driven offense um, in a sheltered role, and I'd like to see him getting a larger role. I'd love to see him getting you know that that first line deployment that Silverberg has been getting and see what he can do. Uh, he was nearly traded to Carolina as part of the, the Justin Falk sweepstakes before the year. I wonder if he's a guy who could be gotten um, if someone's willing to trade a defenseman, say Buffalo, and then what could he do um, on a team starved for offense uh, like the Sabres are? Or like the Anaheim Ducks. It's, Funny you mentioned, like, they have been dangling him in trades, and they haven't either fully committed to him either. Like, this year, he was playing between 12 and 15 minutes for a bunch of the first chunk of the season, and it seemed like he just could not get good deployment or exposure. Lately, he's seeing more in, like, the 17 to 20-minute range, which is great, uh, and long overdue. So, yeah, we'll see if Anaheim is showcasing him or has become newly enamored. A change of scenery would be lovely for Andre Kasha. Uh, let's move on to Montreal, where Brendan Gallagher is another outjuried player. He's back in the lineup after being sidelined with a concussion and who had a couple missteps on his way to recovery. But Gallagher is back now, and he's looking pretty good. He's got one goal and five shots in each of his two games since returning. For the math people out there, that's two goals and ten shots total in his last two games. Gallagher returned to his spot alongside best line buds Tatar and Phil Deneau, which displaced Ilya Kovalchuk, who's now playing on line... I don't know. I don't know how to even label the Habs lines. I guess we're going to call this the second line for now. Uh, it's with Armia and Suzuki and Kovalchuk, and that line is looking good. They controlled the puck most of the time they were on the ice in the Habs last game. They scored a goal, though Kovalchuk wasn't in on it. And like looking at these guys one at a time, Joel Armia, 12 shots and four points in his last four. Suzuki in his last three has five points and seven shots, was on the top power play Saturday night. Kovalchuk, meanwhile, has pointed just once in his last three games. But on the whole, this change to Montreal has been an amazing change of scenery for him. Nine points in 11 games as a member of the Habs. So Steve, Elon asks me to rank forwards or skaters on very on like one team per episode so i'm gonna throw this ranking question at you now can you rank 
these Habs forwards. We I, like. I'm actually tempted to ask you to rank all of them, not just the ones I've mentioned, because it seems like always it's been uh, such a horizontal landscape in Montreal. Uh, like trying to pick the best one of the group is pretty difficult, especially when you have someone like Max Domi who has gone completely silent, almost completely silent, right? He had a six-game goal-scoring streak a little while ago. Now he's goalless in 13, just two points in his last 11. And maybe most concerning for Domi, his plummeting time on ice. In his last four games, he's seen 17 minutes, then 16 minutes, then 15 minutes, then 13 minutes in his most recent game. And that includes more time being spent on the weaker of the two Habs power play units. So let me rewind back to the question I wanted to ask you. I've named Gallagher, Tatar, Deneau, Kovalchuk, Armia, Suzuki, and Max Domi. How would you rank those seven Habs forwards in terms of who you want to own the rest of the way? What a daunting task. This is like asking me to uh, pick my favorite Bic pen when they're all fresh off the assembly line. Like there's there's not a whole lot of special there. But I, I would say that certainly uh, you're looking for point production. Probably Tatar's your number one guy. Uh, multi-cat, um, you're looking at Gallagher as your number one guy. Um, super deep, um, like masher type setup with face-off wins. Maybe Deneau is your guy. Um, keeper league. Uh, you might be thinking Suzuki's your guy. And then um, beyond that, like Kovalchuk is, gosh, it, you know, it, it'd be, it'd be nice to know uh, where he's going to be come the, come the fantasy playoffs because he could get traded to another team and the end then just go completely irrelevant. Um, he could end up irrelevant, e- even just staying in Montreal um, just based on how many uh, light toys that they have to deploy. Like certainly he offers something that a lot of their guys don't, but like ultimately, I don't know, he's not really, um, that good but like certainly he offers um a scoring component and creativity component that a lot of their guys don't have did you rank them one to seven or did you just say you like tatar and then it's reasonably even total points rest of the way tatar is your number one uh i would say gallagher is your number two i'd throw a toss-up between uh suzuki Domi and Deneau, uh for for points the rest of the way. I would say Kovalchuk is a step below that. Uh, I think you also mentioned Armia. I think he's he's probably a step below that. Okay, so you have Domi firmly in the middle there, which means you still have some hope in him. I guess Drouin is coming back soon. He looks poised to finally make his return to the lineup, probably before we record our next show. He's been injured for nearly three months, and he was breaking out. He had 15 points in 19 games before his injury. And now it's hard to say, again, looking at the Habs line's how, like, where does he fit into the lineup? Do you think he goes back to play with Max Domi? Because, hey, Max Domi needs someone to play with. Or does Kovalchuk get displaced again? Or does maybe Nick Suzuki get bumped down the lineup? Do you have any guess for where Jonathan Duran re-enters the Habs lineup? Oh, I have absolutely no guess. Like, they've got so <laughs> many, like, they're, they're so dedicated to playing inferior options in optimal positions. And I don't know. It's just, like I said, like a bunch of Bic pens that uh, none of them are any better than the rest. The Montreal Bic pens, uh, very, yeah, like, 
very interchangeable, and that's the way management seems to like it at the moment. How about one guy who is not even in the mix right now? Yes, Barry Kotkaniemi sent down uh, ostensibly to make room in the lineup for Jonathan Duren and open up a roster spot. That means there's guys like Nick Cousins, Nate Thompson, and Dale Weiss, and Ryan Paling, I think, is still up with the team. So where does that fit? Where does that put Kotkaniemi for our expectations for him to going forward? Of course, it hasn't been a really great year for him. It hasn't been a breakout season, nor has he really necessarily been given that breakout opportunity or deployment, uh, but just eight points in 36 games, playing only 13 minutes a night. What should we read into this Kotkaniemi demotion? Go down to the AHL, score some points, build some confidence. Um, it's probably... You know, a lost year for the for the Habs as an entire franchise. So go down there, destroy that league, uh, come back next year, earn your roster spot, and we'll go from there. Okay, let's look to Chicago where Dylan Strom is back in Chicago's lineup uh, as of Saturday night. He missed seven games with a sprained ankle. A sprained ankle? Walk it off, Dylan. Come on, seven games? Anyway, it's good to see he's back and fully recovered and healthy. Uh, he had just 14 minutes in his return, got a short turn on the second power play, which is the curious piece because that would be considered a demotion for Dylan Strom as he's been on the top power play most of the season. And for those who listened to our last episode, you'll remember that this means Kirby Doc held on to his top power play spot that he has done. Uh, let me check my notes here. Absolutely nothing with. Mind you, no one has been doing anything with the power play deployment in Chicago lately. Over the last month, that's 10 games. The team leaders in Chicago's power play points are Taze, Kane, and Debrinkit, unsurprisingly, uh, but they're all tied with just two power play points apiece in their last 10 games. Then you have Gustafsson, Duncan Keith, and Drake Kajula with one each, and that's it. Nine power play points scored by the entire Blackhawks roster in the last 10 games. So I don't know that we should put this on Kirby Doc uh, for him not being able to produce on the top unit because nobody else is. But I would love to see Strom get back up there. Could he solve Chicago's power play problems if they just like say, hey, you're back. Get on power play one. I don't know. You really got to respect uh, Chicago's ability to have so much talent and not be able to put forth a uh NHL caliber power play like year year over year like last year was the outlier when they actually did have a good power play otherwise it seems like most years they just can't seem to do it for whatever reason and especially with you know some of the toys they have to play with like they should be lighting up teams with uh, with their power play I think Strom could help probably a better better option for them than Doc at this point um, he was part of their power play unit that went bonkers in the second half last year. Um, yeah, we'll see if, uh, if once he gets back up to full speed. But of course, uh, you know how coaches like to use that power play time as uh, as a bit of a reward um, for for a job well done in other aspects of the game. So you wonder if, uh, if he has to earn his way up there first. I hope he gets there before long. For now, Strom at least is playing with Alex Dabrinkit at 5-on-5, five five, which... Hopefully, can that ignite Debrinket? Even though, uh, like, Strom has been healthy and playing with Debrinket, and Debrinket hasn't been scoring. Uh, so we can't say now all of that's going to change. But 
I've held a candle for Debrinket through all uh, his struggles this year. Right now he's pacing for just 18 goals, which amounts to fewer than half of the 41 goals Debrinket scored last season. Where do you stand on Debrinket, Steve? Do you see this as just being a lot of unfortunate variants as I do? Or do you think that maybe last year's 41 goals was a mirage? It wasn't a mirage, but like I said, like this is a team that does not uh, typically put forth a very strong power play. Um, a lot of his action last year came from the power play, but I mean, like a, a, as much as he isn't producing a whole heck of a lot, I think you look at the percentages and he's probably due to, to do a little bit more than he has. I think he'd be a guy expecting roughly 30 goals from uh, in any given year. And if it's a little bit less than that, or if it's a little bit more than that, it, it's all going to kind of come out in the wash. So let me ask you a Debrinket question. And we just talked about Tomas Tatar, uh, and this is very self-indulgent. So everybody, please uh, allow me to be self-indulgent with Elon away. I traded Victor Arvidsson for Alex Debrinket earlier this season. And then I've been receiving offers from another owner who wants to trade me Tomas Tatar for out for my Alex Debrinket. What do you think between those two rest of season? Let's say, uh, in our cupful, like goals are worth a little more than assists, but generally you're looking for goals, assists, shots are the key drivers. Uh, who would you prefer between those two the rest of the way? Uh, rest of the way, I, I would probably lean towards Tatar, but you know, um, and right now you can't guarantee that he's going to be sticking around in Montreal. I think uh, on a lot of other teams, he just might not be a fit. Like right now, he's in a great spot on that top line where they can kind of use the, the offensive skills that he has alongside uh, some some massive play driving forwards in Deneau and Gallagher. So that allows him to, to be really good. But like you look at upside and, and I would way rather have Debrinkat, even though he hasn't been producing. So if you think that there's a very good chance that Tatar is going to sustain a top line role uh, and stay in Montreal, then I say uh, roll with him. But otherwise I, w- I would just stick it out with Debrinkat and see what happens. Yeah. I believe in both their upsides, which makes things kind of difficult to to really I, I just think to bring it as the higher upside but thank you for your answer I will reconsider I've been rejecting these offers as they come in but I'm going to rethink it okay let's move on to uh, a few last outjuries here let's start in the crease where Tuka Rask returned from a concussion on Friday night and looked fantastic against Winnipeg he stopped 37 of 38 to earn the two to one win uh, of course then on Saturday, Yarrow Halak followed that up by also allowing just one goal to Minnesota, stopping 25 of 26 shots for a win of his own. Are we just looking at a 50-50 split between Rask and Halak the rest of the year? Yeah, yeah, for the most part. I mean, I think that um, fantasy, uh, fantasy hockey players are going to have to get used to this because this seems to be the way uh, that are going with their with their net mining and you can't disagree with it like why have only one guy when you can have two and you know um stop drafting them high and start grabbing awesome backups and you're gonna have a lot of success and then another backup who has been not awesome but relatively okay over in detroit uh Elon would kill me for calling him in a backup. The starting goalie in Detroit, Jonathan Bernier, he returned from injury Saturday to stop 30 of 31 shots against the Rangers. Uh, 
Halak and Rask won by letting up just one goal. Unfortunately, Bernier lost because he plays for Detroit. That was not enough to pick up the win or even a loser point for his team as Henrik Lundqvist shut the door at the other end. Uh, in Bernier's absence, Jimmy Howard had a chance to reprove himself, but he instead continued his absolute stinker of a season. Uh, Howard went 0-6-1 with an 884 save percentage in the seven games that Bernier was out Red Wings give their goalies a huge workload, though, and Bernier has managed it reasonably well. He has a 907 save percentage, though his quality start percentage is barely above 40%, which brings me to the question, is Bernier too scary to own as the Red Wings goalie? Now that he's healthy, should anyone be interested, or should he still just be uh, in desperate times only, in emergency, break glass, streaming Jonathan Bernier? Yeah, anyone who is rostering Detroit goaltenders in their league probably likes to light matches at gas stations. <laughs> yes, similar risk level. Uh, let's end with two probably inconsequential outjuries that we just want to give passing mention to. Justin Schultz returned Friday against Philadelphia and had a very Justin Schultz game, one shot, one hit, two blocks, no points, no power play time. Uh, actually, only the first unit even touched the ice, and Latang was still quarterbacking the top unit in Pittsburgh. Last week, Steve, Elon, and I guessed that we'd be really bored by Schultz's return. So far, we're right. Do you think that we'll continue to be right? Absolutely. Like, uh, where does he even fit in now that they've got uh, Marino? capable of playing uh, really strong shutdown minutes. And I mean, like he, he could play a little bit of an offensive role as well. I think they've got a lot of options there. It's just kind of uh, a nice insurance policy for them at this point. We had a short conversation about Marino versus Schultz the rest of the year. I took Marino, even if we're just counting points, I just have that little faith in Schultz getting on uh, um, any kind of meaningful run the rest of the way. Speaking of someone who might have trouble getting on a meaningful run the rest of the way, Eunice Donskoy returned uh, to the Avs lineup. He had been concussed, missed a month of gameplay. He only played 13 minutes, being eased back in, two shots on goal, nothing else of consequence in his return. Most interestingly, and I'm not sure how much I should be reading into this because he's being eased back into the lineup, but Donskoy did not have his top six spot handed back to him. He played on the third line with Tyson Jost and Matt Nieto, which means that Valerie Nichushkin remained on the second line with Kadri and Burakovsky. Now, Nichushkin has been stream-worthy since about mid-November, uh, and in that time, he's played 29 games, had 17 points and 53 shots in those 29 games. Uh, Nichushkin himself only saw 10 minutes of time on ice last night, though, and has been his usual inconsistent self, even while seeing better line mates in the top six, playing with Kadri and Burakovsky. Uh, so I guess my question for you here, Steve, is... Are Donskoy or Nachushkin even worth considering? Uh, or like, I don't know. I, I want to ask you who gets more points rest of season, but you could also just say, uh, who cares? Neither of them. These are guys who could score at that 40 to 50 point pace for, for an extended run. I, I, I think I much prefer Donskoy's offensive uh, upside, but... Uh, you know, he also, a lot of his production this year was based on, uh, you know, really high percentages. And some of that's going to come when you're getting top line minutes alongside Nathan McKinnon. And 
he's probably not going to get that the rest of the way. But I mean, you know, injuries do happen. He he could go on another hot run, um, depending on how things shake out. But I, I think he's definitely the more offensively talented of the two. So if you had to lean towards one, it'd be Donskoy. But uh, you know, it might take him a while to get back up to that level uh, coming off a concussion. Let's look at some other line changes that have been happening around the league and where there is a top line spot for someone to apparently step in and make some hay over in Calgary. Shawnee and Johnny have had a revolving door of third wheels on the Calgary top line with three uh, more or less randos getting turns there since the all-star break. Uh, one of them has been Buddy Robinson, a 28-year-old journeyman who picked up one goal on the top line last night. It was his second career NHL goal uh, in 10 career NHL games going back to the 2015-16 season where he got a cup of coffee, a couple cups of coffee with the Ottawa Senators. Another rando is Derek Ryan who did nothing with Johnny and Shawnee. Shawnee Monty. I'm not sure if I should go with Shawnee or Monty there. You can tell me. And then Sam Bennett also getting some time on the top line. He has two points in his last three games, but none of those coming from his stints on the top line, which make you wonder, is he just getting showcased? Are the Flames hoping to get some kind of return for him? So I have two questions for you about this whole Calgary third wheel situation. Who is going to end up spending the most time there the rest of season? Is it going to be anyone who has some uh, some measure, some iota of fantasy consequence, or is it just going to be kind of like the Edmonton situation where they're rotating in Josh Archibald or James Neal, and it's just like, okay, I'll stream you just because there's a chance you're playing with some really good players and you might get a point, but that's it. The answer might be D, because we know that the Flames traded Michael Froelich to open up some uh, cap space uh, in order to go shopping for uh, a right-handed shot. Now, obviously, no one makes deals um, in- unless they're getting an overpay um, until the trade day. So right now, they're looking at all their other options, and they've given Buddy Robinson um, a-, a-, a chance on that line. And the guy, you know, <laughs> alongside uh, alongside Goudreau, uh, he looks like an ant just, just running over orcs out there and i'm i'm fairly interested i picked him up in both of my uh my really deep leagues and i mean gets you some hits uh seems to be you know a bit of a shooter playing in a situation like that like i i'd be a lot more interested in him than archibald just because there's less uh, of a track record of him playing at the top level and we know that uh, guys fitting i don't know a, a similar type profile like michael furland have have succeeded in that situation in the past um but i mean that situation in Calgary is just strange. Like the their top line is scoring like a fourth line, um, and, and have been all year. Like it's a, it's a sad, sad state of affairs that they're not getting uh, the type of production that they think that they should be out of their top line. I think Derek Ryan is their most productive five on five scorer uh, on a per sixty basis. Which I mean, and he's apparently not producing when he is getting top line runs. So just keep him down on the third line and and hope he keeps uh, producing and uh, hopefully their 
top line comes around at some point. Uh, Robinson did score a goal last night. He, he, he racked up a fight as well. He's been piling up hits. So uh, I, I'd be interested in him uh, out of the out of the bunch just because he doesn't have a track record. So maybe he gets hot and, and that's a solution for them. Otherwise, I think they're making a trade. It really seems like last year in Calgary was a mirage, one that I bought into in terms of just how amazing the offense was. We had a, a patron ask in the Facebook group earlier this week or just sort of like, be sad about owning Mark Giordano and just how rough it had been. And me, I invested in three flames at the draft. I got totally sucked into their year last year, which was a big mistake. Looking back now, I I see what the warning signs were. They scored a goal per 60 minutes above their expected number, which is a huge, huge discrepancy. And I should have seen some of that coming back down. But Giordano himself, like none of these guys have necessarily fallen off a whole lot. It's just that last year, they totally, totally overperformed. And looking at their their actual goals scored per 60 minutes this year, Giordano is down over one goal per 60 minutes while he's on the ice. Uh, so that's not an individual stat. That's a team stat. But that's with the whole first line is essentially facing after uh, whatever magic potions they had working for them last year have run out. Speaking of the top line in Calgary, Elias Lindholm uh, doesn't look like he's getting another crack there, does he? He was there for the first 30 games with Monaghan and Gaudreau, but has been absent from the top line for virtually all of the last 20 games. And uh, so I, it's, I almost thought when you said you were going to choose Option D, you're going to say, well, Lindholm's going to go back there, but it sounds like you don't think so. No, and I mean, I, I think he might actually be in a better spot on, to, on that second line, that matchup line that they have with Kachuk and uh, Mangiapane. Like, it, that's that's a really good um, possession-driving type line. Like, I think that he's been more productive in that spot. Like, certainly, if if uh, Gaudreau and Monaghan could ever get going, and, and those are, those are guys who typically have been uh, very strong five-on-five performers, so it's it's strange that they haven't gotten it done uh, to the level that they normally do. But, I mean, Lindholm, like, I don't know, you, what you see is what you get. Like, he's, you know, last year was a little bit of an overproduction, but this year he's he's falling right into, into a, a good spot uh, on that second line, and he's, you know, he's still very productive for fantasy owners, uh, cranking up right around that, you know, 30-goal, 60-point type level. Like, that's that's really good production. He gets you lots of shots. He's, he's in the mix on the power play, uh, even though it's not that good. Like, it's still a productive spot. Like, he's going to get close to 20 power play points on the year. Like, I, I don't know. I don't think he needs to play on that top line for him to be effective. And, and certainly they like his ability to slide over to the center position. So they're not going to use him on that top line and they're going to look for a different option. Someone else who is not getting used on the top line anymore, Mikhail Backlund. Uh, he wasn't doing much there, so it doesn't really matter. But if you're holding on to him or streaming him regularly, know that he is now playing mostly with Bennett, Lucic, and Tobias Reeder. Uh, so no value from him anymore there. Uh, in LA, someone who's renewed their value, Dustin Brown, coming back from a pretty awful year that had been up until just recently. He had 19 points in 43 games before he went streaking on a five-game point streak uh, that was snapped Saturday night. But Brown still picked up six shots to offer his owners a fantasy-relevant night, even with no points to show for it. He's now back on the top line with Kopitar and Alex Iofalo, where he wasn't for a few games after coming back from an injury. and uh, But now he's been there for two games, and yet he still has not ascended to the top power play unit. I'm wondering if... 
we can expect some more production the second half of the season than we did in the first half. Uh, it's been nice to see him surge a little bit after having been really disappointing as someone I thought would have like a baseline of fantasy relevance here, at least as a 50-point player. He's missed that mark by a fair amount so far. Can he be at least a 50-point player the rest of the way? Yeah, I'll be curious to see uh, how they decide to deploy him the rest of the way. Like, it, it, you know, they're, they're still contractually obligated to him for for quite some time so i think that uh you know this might be a spot where they they try to boost his confidence a little bit uh going into another off season without any playoffs um but you could also see them decide yeah we're gonna shuffle you down the lineup a little bit and uh try some different options on that top line to see if they can they can explore uh some younger options so it'll be curious to see how they approach this um but definitely like I don't know, Brown, he, you know, when Kopitar went off for that MVT, MVP level type season a couple of years ago, he was a main beneficiary. So if they, if they can get any momentum in the second half, um, start producing up to up to the level of their underlying metrics i think that uh, he could be an interesting guy okay let's look at some other guys who have been hot and cold lately let's start with our hot streaks and maybe we'll turn this steve into a bit of a lightning round i'll tell you where they're at you can tell me in you know about 30 seconds if you think they'll keep it up if i think they're in tampa bay <laughs> some of them are <laughs> but we also have a cold streak in tampa bay so maybe i'll start with the hot streak in tampa bay uh, anthony sorelli who's been an on-off guy this season. He's now on again, four goals and six assists for 10 points in his last seven games, only nine shots in that time, but shooting has never really been his jam. Right now, Sorelli is having the success with Tyler Johnson and Andre Palat, which begs the question, is Anthony Sorelli the new triplet? He's definitely not, but he's also phenomenal. He, he's he's going to be the guy who is never going to be, his reputation isn't going to match up to his fantasy production, um, but he can still be fantasy relevant, especially in leagues that are counting face-off wins and maybe some hits in there, but... Um, like he's just he's just a defensive monster and he's capable of tilting the ice for the lightning yet another uh side the first round for them a uh, phenomenal player he he gets minutes here and there with Stamkos Kucherov seems seems to be productive enough to, no matter who they play him with so uh if you're in a face-off win type league he's a guy you want on your roster and Tampa as you mentioned Steve as a team on just a wild tear uh, since since Christmas, or since just before Christmas, they have won 15 of their 18 games, uh, just two losses in regulation in that time. And only one of those wins came outside of regulation, too. The Lightning are on fire, and you think that would help everybody. Uh, it hasn't helped quite everybody, and we'll get to that guy in our cold streaks. But Braden Point, uh, only six assists in the last nine isn't great, but Tyler Johnson, five in his last nine. Andre Palat, seven in his last eight. We mentioned Sorelli, of course, Nikita Kucherov and Stamkos with 12 points each in their last nine games. And this is just over the last three weeks. Uh, if you go all the way back to when this streak started, you would see uh, these guys are delivering on all that you would want to have expected from them. How about someone who you wouldn't have expected a lot from 
Drake Batherson over in Ottawa, which is just a place where you know, where you've learned to temper your expectations. He's got four assists in his last three games, also only four shots on goal. He's playing with Colin White and Tyler Ennis at five on five, also has a limited role on the power play, but he does come to the NHL with some pedigree. He had 46 points in 37 AHL games played before being called up. He was a league leader in the minors. So now, is Drake Batherson making a case to stick in Ottawa the rest of the way? How eager should people be to get him on their rosters? Yeah, I don't know how long they're going to keep him up. Like, certainly, uh, Ottawa wants to reward some of their young guys. But at the same time, like, uh, we've seen from other teams in the past that really benefit from having a, a strong AHL team go on a really long playoff run. They uh, they might be cycling him back down to the minors, just giving him a little splash, a little taste, uh, you know, a, a paddle on the butt uh, job well done for uh, for continuing to destroy the AHL um, but they may they may just continue cycling guys in and out certainly his line deployment like white and Ennis like that's not all that exciting we know he's got talent he's a legit prospect whenever he is up for real um, and, and getting legitimate top six usage then he's going to be a guy that you want on your roster right now I don't know if they're going to keep him up just because their AHL team's doing really well and I I think that they're they're going to want to go on a long run with those guys. Tyler Ennis, we should also mention, playing with Batherson is up to five points in his last four games and averaging four shots per game in that span. So as long as he's playing with Batherson, maybe these guys have some chemistry. Keep an eye on him. Someone who had been missing chemistry all season long on a team that's been missing chemistry all season long. How about Mikhail Granlund in Nashville, who was trying to address their chemistry issues by finally, finally, finally setting their lines up in a way that looked semi-coherent. They were running with Duchesne, Johansson, and Granlund on one line, Forsberg, Arvidsson, and Kyle Turris on the other. Uh, but, of course, they were shut out on Saturday. So who knows if these lines all get blended together again. But we did get a little breath of what Mikhail Granlin could offer amongst these line changes where he scored his 8th, ninth, and 10th goals of the season over a four-game span. Those three goals came on seven shots, though, and he has just 12 shots in those last six games. The most bizarre thing about this is that Granlin has now gone 18 games, 18 games without an assist. This is from a quality top six player who has made a career out of being a pass first guy. Granlin had 127 assists in his last three seasons before this one is now without an assist in his last 18 games. I'm repeating that again for effect. And he only has eight assists this entire season. So what the heck is going on in Nashville? They still also have these super weird power play lines with Forsberg playing with Granlin, Smith, and Tourist on one unit, Johansson, Duchesne, and Arvidsson on another. I don't know exactly what I want to ask you other than can Granlin somehow become someone worth owning this year or is it just lost in Nashville? It certainly seems like it's lost. Like it, it's crazy what's going on there because I mean, chalk them up as another team who just cannot reliably put together a, a legitimate power play. You know, we thought it was finally going to happen. They were going with the 4-4 uh, 
look. They'd gotten rid of uh, PK and added Jane, who was supposed to help things. And, you know, they had, they showed some hot flashes there. Can't really figure out their lines. And yet somehow I think they've got almost three lines worth of players who are owning like 52% or better of the shot share. And yet they, they can't seem to score actual goals. So I, I don't know if, you know, they're, they're rolling into a situation similar to, to Carolina uh, back in the Bill Peters days when, the, the, you know, they're just trying to game the shot shares and not actually win games. But I mean, again, like they're a team who it seems like goaltending has been more of an issue, but maybe there's something about their systems that's uh, making it more difficult for their goaltending. Um, they're getting great scoring out of guys like uh, Benino and and uh, Freddie Gaudreau. And it's just, a, I don't know, just a really strange team and certainly they're missing Ryan Ellis uh, right now, uh, right. who who's probably uh, their most dependable two-way defenseman. Um, so that's hurting them on both ends. Maybe they're not able to cheat as much offensively, not having a reliable guy like that. Um, but back to your question about Granlund, um, if the, if the Predators can actually, you know get their act together, then I would think that he would be a main part of that. And if they can't, I would think that they're going to trade him to a team where maybe he uh, he fits better. So uh, cautiously optimistic with him going forward. And I'm almost hopeful to see him get traded somewhere else so that we can get a little bit more consolidation of uh, of the power and of, of the lines in there. I, I'd really like to see the uh, the Jofa line get back together and maybe Arvidsson have a, uh, a final third to the season that uh, lives up to how quality a player he is. We have been begging, begging for this to happen all season long. So we are right there with you, hoping it happens. I have a couple other guys who are sort of on a hot streak, even though they're not getting any assists. Brandon Saad's one of them. Seven points in his last eight games. All of those points have been goals, and all of them come at five on five, uh, which is just wild. 23 shots uh, to get these seven goals. So he's shooting at 31%, which is unsustainable, but it's a really good thing Saad is scoring because it's been 15 games since he picked his last apple. And then Denis Gurianov is another guy who gets no assists and making his case for the Cy Young with 13 goals and six assists this year in Dallas. He's up to seven goals in his last 15 games. He's taking 29 shots in that time. Three of the goals have come on the power play and he's shooting 24%. Of course, he has just one assist in that time, which is a bummer that keeps him from being more helpful to his owners. And Goryanov also has just two assists in his last 31 games. And he doesn't even shoot a ton. So it's like, if you're not assisting, you're not shooting. What are you doing, Denis Gurianov? But I think we already talked about this earlier in the show where you said Dallas is really just trying to shut things down and there's not a whole lot of fancy value to be found there. Do you believe the same applies to Gurianov? Absolutely. Like he's another guy in the hints quality of, of, you know, being a really dynamic skater and can provide some instant offense off the counter attack. But in terms of, of, you know, setting up uh, consistent uh, zone time and offense and stuff like that. It's not uh, not really his game at this point, but again, another young player, and I think that in a different system, maybe he'd be building towards that a little bit more, but uh, exciting to own in a in a dynasty type league, but in a one year league, um, he's not more than a streamer for me. Okay. Let's move on to someone who Elon says is definitely more than a streamer. In fact, from his sunny, warm place, he wrote me a note when I was planning for the show and he said, Brian, are you ready to admit that Zach Hyman is above replacement? Finally, 
And I was like, oh, oh, wow, what have I been missing? Like, what don't I know about Zach Hyman that Elon knows? Because we've had this conversation earlier in the year where, you know, I said Zach Hyman is no more than a guy to stream in maybe for a week or two at a time or a game or two at a time, but he's not a mainstay on your roster. And Elon's like, that's crazy. He's locked into a top six spot in Toronto, produces enough to stay relevant enough to never want to let go of. So I check Zach Hyman's game logs to see what he's got going on. He's on a three-game point streak. Okay, okay. Uh, he has two goals and two assists and six shots in those three games. Uh, six points in 10 games before that for Zach Hyman. Though he grabbed five of those points in two of the 10 games. So this has been a theme for Zach Hyman. Uh, been putting up these huge multi-point nights and then is quiet other times. It actually has all added up, though, to 22 points in 23 games. He's got 51 shots in his last 23 games to go with 12 goals and 10 assists. He's shooting 24%, roughly, which is probably a little high, definitely a little high. And if you add up all those multi-point nights Hyman has, he has 15 points in seven multi-point nights, and then he has seven points in the other 15 nights where he didn't get one, or where he didn't get two or more points. So I don't know what point I'm trying to make here by twisting all this and saying, well, he has these huge multi-point nights and then goes quiet on the whole 22 points in 23 games. There's no arguing that Zach Hyman is above replacement. And I feel like the reason, before I ask you for your take on this, Steve, I just want to try and justify my position and why I think I'm going to change it. Like, Elon, I am convinced. I think the coaching change has helped in Toronto because Hyman is seeing ice times that he didn't see in the Babcock days as Chief Keefe shows more of an inclination to shower his top six with big minutes and less of an inclination to reward his bottom six role players at weird and awkward times. So, Steve, do you think that what we're seeing from Hyman is enough to justify him being uh, locked into a roster for pretty much the rest of the season. I don't think his point, his near point per game pace is sustainable, but what do you think? How high is his ceiling really? It seems like he might score 30 goals this year. So you, you slide him into that, um, that position as, as one of those, um, underrated third banana type guys that we've seen over the years um, guys like Pat Maroon and, and Michael Furland and stuff like that who have been able to score up near 30 goals 50-ish points like he's not going to get power play time so you can forget about that category with him but you know roughly two shots a game and just some really nice plus minus maybe maybe some other peripheral categories and he might just score 30 goals like he's not a guy that I'm going to go out and, and lean on he'd definitely be a guy I try to be like hey look he's you know he's on pace for 30 plus goals he's a leaf i'm gonna try to sell high on him like i would try to do that but if you can't get anyone to bite like he's he's gonna be a useful guy to have in your rotation but he's not gonna be the first guy uh up off your bench um like a a any night that you're you know you're facing a roster decision you know hyman's gonna be the guy that you're like yeah not playing him tonight another hot leaf by the way who you would obviously play no matter what but is especially making that choice work for you more often than not is Mitch Marner has absolutely found his game after a start where he kind of sputtered a little bit. Uh, he is now up to 
33 points in his last 22 games. I was trying to see if this coincides with Babcock's firing, and it 100% does. Marner was injured while Babcock was fired, and then he came back for a game and did nothing. But right after that one pointless game, Marner has pointed in all but two of his next 22 games on his way to scoring 33 points in that span. So way to go, Mitch Marner, for doing that. Let's go to Vancouver and talk about another top-line player who was not a top-line player going into this season, Jake Vertanen, still remains on the top line with Elias Pettersson and JT Miller after the All-Star break, where we thought maybe that'll be when it ends. Uh, But Vertanen, no, he's still there. Six points in his last five games. And Brock Besser, meanwhile, remains down with Adam Gadet and Dominic Roussel. No, scratch that. Antoine Roussel. And Besser played a season-low 12 minutes and 23 seconds last night, despite the fact that Besser has started making some lemonade with two assists in his last three, but only three shots in those last three games too, which is not very Besserian. So how do we see this playing out? Can Jake Vertanen really last on the top line a whole lot longer just because he's doing well, even if Brock Besser is just floundering elsewhere in the lineup? I mean, they're, you know, coaches are always looking to push buttons and find different mixes and stuff like that. And certainly uh, in theory, you would want to kind of split things up and have a big shooter on a couple of different lines. So you move Besser down so that, you know, shooting becomes more for Pedersen when he's out there because he's got, you know, a phenomenal shot and they can they can get a different type of uh, player, maybe a bit more of a puck pursuit type player in Vertanen, a bit more of a dirty areas type player. Um, and if they're getting, you know, really successful minutes out of them, like, you know, we mentioned uh, mixes like this before with uh, with Furland and, and Maroon and guys like that uh, fitting alongside superstar t- type players. Like, it's no surprise. Vertanen was awesome in juniors and then didn't have an immediate uh, immediate success when he came up to to the big league. So it, it takes these bigger guys a little bit longer to uh, to really put it all together. Seems like he is at this stage. Um, as long as he's productive, they're probably going to use him there because you know why why go away from it um and if he falls off maybe that's a chance for Besser to get back in there and certainly if the coach wants to get Besser going again see some confidence waning they can mix it up and I mean it's hard for them to make changes because they've been on you know two really long winning streaks right so um things start going high for them they probably start making changes and then you know we see uh what is really real uh at that stage and like certainly if things go uh, awry for them more often you know maybe you know they keep that Besser option on the top line as a break in case of emergency option yeah that's how i see it too so long as they're continuing to get away with doing this and winning games Besser can stay on that line, which is really crummy for his owners. But uh, if it works for the Canucks, that's probably the most important thing uh, in the bigger picture. Okay, I'm going to zip through a few other hot streaks. And at the end, Steve, you let me know if there's one guy you want to comment on or if we can just keep going to the cold streaks. Uh, Let's start with Kyler Yamamoto, who's now up to 10 points in his last 11 games, 15 shots, playing with Dreisaitl and Nugent Hopkins. Should be absolutely owned playing with Dreisaitl and Nugent Hopkins if he isn't already. Nugent Hopkins, by the way, one of the hottest forwards in the league over the last six 
six weeks, eight goals and 11 assists for 19 points in his last 14 games. To go with those 19 points, six have been on the power play. He has 36 shots too, so about two and a half shots per game. No surprise that Nugent Hopkins has been able to start pouring it on ever since joining Dreisaitl and Yamamoto rather than playing with Shea-Sun, Kyra, or Neil on whatever the remainders were of the Oilers lineup to join him on quote-unquote line two. Another hot streak, well, we mentioned Buchnevich in New York that you should consider, so I'm going to skip ahead to Paul Stasny in Vegas, who's making the most of William Carlson's absence. He's got six points in his last four games. We'll see where he goes once William Carlson is back. The other centerman who's gotten a bump, Chandler Stevenson, also has four points in his last six games. So, The Golden Knights are actually doing all right. Both these guys producing above the clip Carlson was before Carlson was injured. We talked about how cold he was going into that. So that's something to keep your eye on to see how the Vegas lineup adjusts once Carlson is healthy. Riley Smith, this is not something you can do anything about, but let's just respect his 25 points in his last 28 games. He's on a really lovely run. And then maybe the last guy is the one I want you to comment on the most, Steve. Damon Severson in New Jersey is, quote, the new hotness, according to Elon. I own Sammy Vatnin, and he's like, I would dump Sammy Vatnin to add Damon Severson, who is now up to 12 points in his last 18 games, has four power play points and 44 shots in those 18 games, which are great numbers for a defenseman, especially for a defenseman in New Jersey. Steve, do you see Damon Severson outshining Anybody else on the New Jersey blue line the rest of the way? Is he a must-own right now? The interesting thing with uh, with the Devils blue line is they're going to be sellers, right? So to what degree do they sell off players and then just, you know, the, the whole sandcastle comes crumbling down? Um, they've been reasonably productive and, and good since trading Taylor Hall, which is a bit flabbergasting. But, um, you know, Vatanen had a hot run there once they finally decided, OK, we're, we're, we're done with the PK experiment. Like it's it's not working. We're not going to use him as our number one guy. Let's go with Vatanen. He had a nice little hot run. And the good thing with Vatanen is that you know you're also getting decent shot totals, good hits, good blocks, um, not getting caved in all the time, although it's it's on the Devils, so you're going to get hurt in, in plus minus a little bit. But now it seems like they're running with Severson, and Vatanen's a guy they're going to be trading at the deadline, presumably anyway. So, I mean, it could be Severson running away with this thing the rest of the year. Um, Butcher is another guy who's super interesting there. We saw him the year that they made the playoffs. He was uh, inching towards being their number one guy. Um, never really ran away with it totally, but he was probably their their top power play unit uh, uh, defenseman for that year. Not super productive in that spot, but he's another guy to to consider to to muddle up the options uh, for you there. So uh, the answer is like it, it's New Jersey. So like how how good is it really going to be? But right now, Severson, plug him in there, and then uh, you know that that's probably your last bench spot anyway. So. You snap him up, and then if he goes cold, then you you go with a different option. Severson doing this, by the way, mostly from the second unit, while Vatnin and Subban continue taking up the time on the top unit and fail to do anything with that time. Over the last 10 games, uh, they've combined for one single 
power play point. Uh, that was by P.K. Subban. Look, it's been a really rough, like, both of them have done nothing that makes either one worth holding in most formats over the last little while, even though we saw some light being shone by Subban, uh, about 15 games ago now, that light has since dimmed once again. All right, let's end the show by going over a handful of cold streaks here, starting with two guys who have been roster mainstays. Now we have to ask, are you snoozing if you're still holding on to these players who definitely grabbed out of free agency at one point? Is it time to part ways with them? Let's start with Anthony Duclair, who looked unstoppable at one point, now just has two points in his last 10 games. In those 10 games, still has 24 shots, including nine shots that came in one game alone against Buffalo. Uh, Duclair had this run of 20 goals in 29 games, but he's now gone without a goal for 14 straight and counting. Are we expecting him to get back on track here, or as the best behind us for Anthony Duclair? He's a super streaky player, so... You know, you're you're going to get these runs and I don't know, I wouldn't be that um, excited to to be continuing to hold on to him uh, if there's more productive options available on the waiver wire. And then Alex Kalorn is the other one who you might want to see if there's more productive options available on the waiver wire. Are you snoozing if you're holding Alex Kalorn, who was posting career highs all over the place? But as we mentioned on the show, or as I mentioned on the show, mostly on the score sheet. Right? These, these career highs were not backed up by anything that had changed in Kalorn's underlying numbers. And now, uh, he's turned back into a pumpkin. Vintage Kalorn has five or six points in his last 14 games, only 18 shots in that time. There's no surprise this fall off in production for Kalorn mostly coincides with when he left the Stamco Sorelli line and landed with guys like Gord and Paquette and Maroon as his line mates. We're done expecting anything from Kalorn, right? Safe to drop? Yeah, I mean, an, another streaky guy, right? Like, uh, with the Lightning, it's always kind of like, mm, where, where are you getting slotted in? Where are you in the mix? Um, so, you know, he had a really hot run there. We're top line and top power play. And now that he's off, you, you shuffle along to the next hot guy. We just talked about a bunch of those hot guys. I'm sorry that we don't have a whole lot of suggestions to give you now. You'll have to rewind if you have Kalorn and you're like, oh, but who's hot? <laughs> Hopefully you were paying attention, at least somewhat. Someone else you might be snoozing on, Alex Edler, who has just one point in his last 11 games, only 15 shots in that time. Thankfully, the blocks and hits are still coming. And Edler, believe it or not, started strong enough this season that he's still on pace for 41 points over 82 games. He got there thanks to six power play points that he picked up in the first quarter of the year. And he has no power play points in his last 19 games. So now Alex Edler sits at a still respectable 21 points in 42 games despite doing nothing for the last few weeks. Vancouver has 30 games left. How many points do you think we can expect from Alex Edler in that time? Or is it a low enough total that we're snoozing if we're holding him and he just needs to be let go? Uh, I would say less than 15 in those final 30 and uh, severe injury risk. But also if you're in a league with blocks and hits, the man is nails. He uh, destroys those categories. So even though uh, Quinn Hughes has made him almost irrelevant uh, from a power play points perspective, um, you still have to consider owning him if you've got hits and blocks because he is dynamite. Someone else you should definitely be dropping is Nino Niederreiter. He was a healthy scratch. We'll see 
I don't know where he lands in the lineup. It didn't turn out for him this year that he was going to be able to really be in a position to succeed for long enough. Or I guess he was in a position for a little while. He just didn't take advantage of it. Steve, should we be giving up on Nino Niederreiter going forward until further notice? Or is there still hope that he can show some of the flashes of the wildly successful player he was upon being acquired by Carolina last year? I mean, I'd be amazed if you hadn't already given up on him months ago yeah so like even looking into the future i i'm a big need a rider booster i dropped him a couple weeks ago probably later than i should have uh, but even looking ahead to next year any optimism that he can regain his any kind of form i don't know it seems like they've got uh, better options there now right like they're, they're not going to go away from aho or teravinen um sveshnikov is on the uh nechas is on the rise uh, they've just got way more enticing options there so like you know he can be uh one of those guys who can drive possession and and be a really strong five on five producer but i don't see him uh being like a number one line type guy uh while he's in carolina yeah there just doesn't seem to be room for him in that depth chart and then let's end the show with a question from elon which i probably should have asked earlier when we were already talking about victor arvidson who is now registered just four points in his last 13 games. He's another guy. Uh, it's like no one's scoring goals in Nashville for anyone to assist on. We talked about Granlund. Arvidsson has just one assist in his last 17 games. All these guys scoring unassisted goals? What's even what's happening over in Nashville? Arvidsson uh, is looking really weak, though, on the whole. And we talked about the weird lines and weird power play situation. Um, his ice time has not taken off. In fact, he's only seen, uh, well, he only saw 14 and a half minutes in his last game. So looking ahead, so Elon wanted me to ask you, if you approve of this decision he made, he dropped Victor Arvidsson for Jean-Gabriel Pajot as a streamer. And instead of Joel Armia, he was trying to decide which was his bottom roster guy, Arvidsson or Armia, to add Pajot. He dropped Arvidsson. Do you think he made the right call? I would assume that he was making that choice, uh, thinking that coming out of the All-Star break, uh, the Canadians had uh, a stacked uh, number of games while the Predators were just getting back into action this weekend. I think they only played the one game, right? Um, so I would assume that it was based uh, predominantly on, on the short-term thinking. And the reality is, like, you look at Armia versus Arvidsson, uh, year long production they've been about the same like obviously we know Arvidsson could go way higher but that's not what they've been doing so um if you're thinking long term but you know you're you're probably going to go with Arvidsson but because he's using this last roster spot as a streamer spot like he's he's thinking short term and he's micromanaging and, and you can't uh, you can't fault him on, on doing that yeah, I guess you can. So there you go, Elon. You are validated. Congratulations. And with that, we are at the end of our episode. Steve, thank you so much for answering everything I threw at you. That was a whole lot of fantasy hockey talk. It's great to hear from you again and have you back in the fold. It was great to have you. Are you going to disappear back behind the fantasy curtain again for now? Or is there anywhere else we should be following you or, I don't know, seeing anything you're putting out? Uh, no, I, I'm not putting anything out. I'm going to go back to uh, 
back to purgatory and just kind of hide out and, and manage my teams as, uh, as softly as possible, try to take a hands-off approach and, and let the season unfold as it should. Uh, hopefully my, my draft list at the, uh, at the start of the year was strong enough for me to, to have teams that can win it all this year. And, uh, um, for the, for those folks who, uh, who want to find, uh, anything that I might do pretty much now, all I do is, uh, is, uh, yearly, uh, preseason, uh, projections. So if they follow me on Twitter, I'll tweet those out, uh, next, uh, next fall and, uh, they can grab those for free and hopefully it helps them with their league. And they can follow you on Twitter at Steve Laidlaw. Very, it's, it's spelled exactly the way you would think at Steve Laidlaw. Well, we're very privileged, Steve, that that you decided to dip your toes back into the fantasy analysis pool just for us and really enjoyed having your perspective and thoughts shared with us. Thanks so much. But with that, let's cue the outro music and I will read the credits and share that this episode of the Keeman Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast was presented by Dabra Hockey and powered by our patrons, including our newest ones, Jay, Benoit, and Gordon. Welcome. Logo art by Brandon Weeb at brandonweeb.com. Outro music by Pat Roach. This episode was researched with help from Dauber Hockey, Frozen Pool, Dauber Prospects, Natural Stat Trick, Evolving Hockey, Cap Friendly, Charting Hockey, HockeyGoalies.org, Hockey Reference, Hockey Viz, Hockey Database, Elite Prospects, Roto World, and Yahoo! Elon will be back again with another regularly scheduled episode next week. You'll get another couple short shifts episodes between now and then. Remember, if you want to support the show, you can leave us a five-star review on iTunes. That's free. You could write a note on iTunes. That actually helps us a little bit more than just hitting the five stars. And, of course, you could become a patron to see all the benefits that patrons of the show get. But aside from supporting the show and making sure we keep making more of them, you can go to patreon.com slash keepingcarlson.com. Thank you all for listening, and until next time, keep on keeping Carl Sun.